As we uh, come now to the scripture, let me ask you please to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, we trust that your word, your word, um, builds up and it edifies. We trust that your word gives grace to all, we, all who hear. And so I pray now, God, that you will you'll do just that, that you'll build us up in your word. You'll bring grace to us. You'll give us a gift, a gift of grace that enables us uh, to know you better and to live in such a way that is pleasing to you. So this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Ephesians, please. Ephesians in chapter 4. I want to read, as I've been reading this passage, beginning in verse 17, through the first couple of verses of um, chapter 5. So Ephesians in chapter uh, 4, please. I hope this is becoming increasingly familiar to you. Ephesians chapter 4. This is the word of God. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And together we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, this particular passage that we find before us, the whole of it, of course, is, is Paul laying out for us how we are to live. I want to take up, God will help me, just a couple of verses, 29 and perhaps 30 if we have time. Uh, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now remember... And Paul is speaking to us about our calling, what we mentioned last Sunday in particular, our primary calling. We have many vocations as, as human beings, as Christians particularly, but here's our primary calling, this call to believe, this call to faith, this call to eternal life, this call 
to be, to live in the kingdom of God, this call to be a part of the household of God, this call to be a temple wherein God makes his dwelling. Right? That's his call to us. And when we hear that word call, we realize that this is coming from outside of us. And that's Paul's whole point in Ephesians, especially the first three chapters. That it's God who does this calling. And he must, because we can't call ourselves to this, because he says to us, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. He says to us, we're enslaved, you see, by the sin that dwells within us. We are enslaved by the world. We're enslaved, if you will, even by Satan himself. And so he says, in order for us... uh, to believe in order for us to enter into the kingdom of God. It must come from him. He does the calling. And when this calling comes and it's effective, then it brings by the word and spirit um, new life to us so that we can believe. So if you're a believer in Jesus, this is all taking place in your life. If you're not, then your hope is that it will. That God will call you in such a way that you'll hear this word and and believe and therefore enter in. It's the same kind of notion that Jesus uh, spoke of when he said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. It's the same kind of notion, you see, same kind of idea. It comes initiated by God, and it comes in such a way uh, for those who, who come to believe that it brings life to them, life out of death, freedom from being enslaved. The power, you see, of this word that comes to us, and it calls us, you see. And so Paul says in chapter 4, verse 1, remember, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk, to live, really, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So what he's saying is, now that you've been called to believe, now you've been called to to, to eternal life, you've been called uh, to live in the kingdom of God, if you we're called to be a part of the household of God, called to be a part of this temple wherein the Holy Spirit dwells, where God dwells. Since all that's taken place, you see, now here's how you're to live now. It isn't that we live this way so we become worthy to be called. No, no, you've been called. This has already taken place. You've already been, in the language of the Bible, saved and so and, and reconciled to God and justified and adopted into his family and all of that. And so now that that has taken place, then this is how you're to live. In fact, Paul says what's taken place is that you have now put off the old self and you've put on the new self. And here's the, 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 the characteristic of this new self, verse 24 in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, this new self is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now you remember that we were, Adam and Eve, created in the image of God, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Created in the image of God, which means we've been created to reflect him, you see, to show who he is by our praise, by our obedience, by our lives. We're to reflect him. And there can be no higher calling, no greater dignity than that than to be made in the image of God, to to reflect him. I was watching the other day on television um, the Little League World Series. I brought lots of memories. I, I never played in the little league world series but i did have a go at little league and uh and and i was i was i was thinking you know if you could ask one of those kids who would you like to be like who would you like to reflect you see what would be the greatest 
baseball player that you could be, you see. Now, in my day, it would have been Willie Mays, Mickey Mantle for me, Grant near Pittsburgh, it would have been Roberto Clemente. But for these kids, I, I don't know, Mike Trout could be Jose Altuve, it could be Mookie Betts. I mean, you just want to be Mookie. Uh, uh, you know, and, and you say, if I could be like that, if I could reflect that player, there'd be no greater honor, no greater dignity as a ball player than, than that. Well, when God says, this trivial example, but when God says, you're made in my image, what he means is that you're going to live in such a way that people will see God. Not that we are God. We never become God. We're always human. But he says, you'll see, the people will see and recognize me, God says. And thus, we're created in true righteousness and holiness. Now, we know that because of the sin of Adam, that the image of God in us is broken so that we don't, because of sin, reflect God as we ought. But we know that in the coming of Jesus, that because of his life and death, that that image is being restored in us. Now, we know a day will come when it will be completely and perfectly restored. In fact, the Apostle John writes of this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 3. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that they know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Now, spend some time this week thinking about that. Right? Nothing more glorious than that. So be as he, be, shall be like, like him, because we shall see him as he is. And then verse 3 goes on, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. It's sort of like telling one of those little little leaguers, um, okay, you want to be like Mike Trout or Jose Altuve, these great players. All right, that's what you, now go practice, right? Go practice. If you really want to be like that, go practice. And so he's saying, uh, one day we'll be like him. If, if that's really what you desire, if you say that's the best then obey now. So Paul's saying, all of these things I'm, I'm laying out for you because, because this is what it means to be one created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is what it is uh, to live, if you will, out this calling. And so from verse 25 on, as we've been working our way through this, these particular verses, uh, we see he's laying out six really uh, particulars. There's no doubt more, but these particulars for the church in Ephesus and for us too. And, and there's a pattern to each of these. And the pattern goes something like this. This is what you're not to do. This is what you are to do. And this is why. This is what you aren't to do. This is what you are to do. And this is why. And you see, what, what that is for us is real freedom. Real freedom to live in the image of God, you see. Uh, real freedom. It, it, he says, this is what it, these, these, these commandments and rules and so forth aren't to restrict, but to free you 
to really be a human being, to really be one who's created in the image of God. This is freedom for us. Anything else is bondage. This is freedom for us to live like this. So, so live like this. And, and so, so we get the first and put away falsehood. We're not, we're, we're not to, 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 to lie, but rather we're to speak the truth. And the reason is because we're members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. So here's what we are to do. Deal with it. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Why? Because if, 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 you, if you continue to let it fester, then it gives the devil an opportunity. Then last week, we talked about the thief no longer stealing. Uh, so what is he supposed to do then if he's not stealing any longer? And this is fabulous. Karen and I, once were very well acquainted um, with a man who was thoroughly a thief. I mean, completely. I mean, this, uh, this man, uh, from his childhood on, stole for the fun of it, for the vocation of it. It was like a calling to him. He, he could not steal. We'd never met anybody like this in our lives. Well, he became a Christian through a various course of events. God saved him. And then he didn't know what to do. <laughs> he, he was, he, he, he was he, utterly annoying to us because he kept coming over to our house all the time. We kept saying, don't you have something to do? And he said, no. Because <laughs> I used to plan stealing stuff. And, and now I, I've got all this free time. Well, the, the, the answer is work. <laughs> do something, do some work. Why? So you can give. You see? So you can give. And, and today he's saying, all right, so here, put away corrupting talk. And then talk in such a way that it builds others up, as fits the occasion. Why? So they may receive grace. And you'll notice in each one of these two, there's a, a tremendous transformation that's implied in each of them. A tremendous, this is, this is a tremendous testimony to the power of God. Take someone who lies, and then they tell the truth. Take someone who lives a life of deception and falsehood, if you will, and take that person then who lives a life of honesty and authenticity and truth. That's a complete transformation, you see. Or, or, or take one who, who's a thief. Take one, a person who takes what belongs to another so that they may have it for themselves and then becomes a person who works in such a way that he takes that which rightfully belongs to himself and gives it to someone else. Complete transformation. And the same transformation in this, this verse that we see today that takes somebody whose, whose speech is corrupting, is rotten, and makes everything else around it rotten. It corrupts everything. You take that person and you transform them to someone because of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They become transformed in such a way that now their speech brings grace. Wow. How can that happen? Only by the grace and the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we know 
that our speech, that speech is powerful. You know, we're not the first ones to speak. We're made in the image of God. Therefore, he was the first one to speak. The Bible opens with God speaking. And he speaks the word. And his, his word, of course, is powerful. It, it creates. We, we, we read about that in our responsive reading this morning in Psalm, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. And night to night uh, reveals knowledge. Uh, we see it, you see. In fact, Paul picks up on this in Romans in chapter uh, 1, and he says that because of this great creation, um, God speaks, communicates, uh, and so therefore we're all without excuse. No one can say, you never told me. He says, well, yes, I did. I told you here I am by my creation. The heavens declare, you see, the glory, the wonder, the greatness, the splendor. Of, of God. He's the first one who speaks. And then, then of course, he speaks through his prophets, uh, we find in the Old Testament. And then he speaks definitively in our Lord Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word, the very one, this one who, who communicates who God is. Um, no one has ever seen God, the scripture says. But the only God who is at his Father's side, he has made him known. You see, Jesus speaks, the word speaks, and what he speaks to us is God. What he speaks to us is this is who God is. He reveals God to us. In fact, the author of Hebrews puts it like this. He said he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. That's who Jesus is, you see, the very one in the image of God who speaks perfectly. Oh, that is true. And then, of course, by way of his spirit, he continues to speak to us uh, by way of the scripture. So God communicates. God speaks. We speak. He, one, of the, one of the distinguishing features of a human being is that we communicate as we do. And we speak. And we express ourselves. And just in the same way that as God speaks... He reveals himself. As we speak, we reveal ourselves. Jesus said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the danger of that, of course, is that when the image of God broken in us comes out, it's evil. So what Paul is saying here, here is, as the new self, your speech should reflect my speech should reflect that new self that's been put on, not the old self that's been put off. That's the transformation, you see. That's the transformation. Uh, I read earlier uh, this morning in our liturgy that uh, from James in chapter 3, and, and, and I, I just uh, weep before that passage generally, um, because as convicting as it is. Um, but he tells us that our, our speech, the words that we use, this tongue that expresses them, uh, is powerful. He compares our tongues, thus the, the words that we speak, to uh, a bit in the um, mouth of a horse that directs it. You can get that horse to go anywhere you want to go, I've been told, because of that. Or the rudder on a ship directs it. 
Very small, but very powerful. Very small, but very powerful. In fact, of all the things that are spoken in the Proverbs of, 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 of our speech, and there's many, many references to speech in the Proverbs, perhaps chapter 18, verse 21 sums it up. This one phrase, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Suppose it be true, if you're a judge, you can condemn someone. But we understand what Paul is saying there in this figurative kind of way, that how we speak to one another can bring life. How we speak to one another can destroy. We get that. We realize that. I mean, one of the most powerful words, it seems to me, that we say is simply the word hello. Have you ever thought that? How much a hello has directed. Some of you chose to continue to come to our church because when you walked in the door, somebody said hello. And, and, and it it changed everything. Right? Just changed everything. You go, oh, they recognize that I'm actually here. That's really, that's really nice. I'll never forget, uh, my family uh, moved from a small town in Pennsylvania, uh, when I was 15 years old. And uh, to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And so you can just uh, list the changes that took place in my life at that point, uh, that point in time in every way. And uh, I- I've not been known to be terribly outgoing, uh, although I've really progressed since then. So you can only imagine what I must have been like. And, uh, and, uh, and, and I still remember to this day uh, going into a gym class, as we called it, PE class. And some kid said hi to me. His name was John Audette. I have no idea where he is today. I don't even know that I saw him after that day, but I'll never forget him. Changed everything. Changed everything, you see. The power of just, of just that, that word. You think of your own life. What are you doing today that you're doing just because somebody said to you at one point in time, you're really good at that? And what aren't you doing today that you once did, but you're not doing it because when you did it, somebody ridiculed you or embarrassed you or said, yeah, you really shouldn't do that. You're not good at that. I mean, think about that. Just, just those words of, of direction. The words can uh, shape our identity. Uh, they can encourage us. They can tear us down. One psychologist has put it like this. He says, your self-image is the sum of all verdicts spoken over you during the course of your life. Your self-image is the sum of all verdicts spoken over you during the course of your life. Now, that may be a bit of an exaggeration. Uh, the hope, therefore, is that we listen to God's verdict about us and that that shapes us. But we know that his word can be drowned out by the words of people. And the hope is that the words of people are consistent with God's word so that they work together in such a way to shape a right identity. Not to blame anybody for our own ills and difficulties, but you know as well as I do that we've all been ill-shaped by believing certain words that others have said. In fact, ill-shaped even by those, some of those words that have been 
true about us that perhaps weren't helpful to be said uh, at the moment. Words start and end arguments. Words start and end wars. Words make or break a nation. Hitler's words incited a people to inhumanity. Churchill's words incited a people to, to sacrifice and heroism. Martin Luther King's words incited a people to stop looking at the color of people's skins and to look at their character instead. So we can see the impact of words on people's lives. Words can make or destroy reputation, strengthen or weaken a friendship, strengthen or weaken a marriage. What happens when the word divorce is introduced into a discussion between a husband and wife. That one word, you see. Words can make or break careers, families, churches. Words can purify a community or putrefy a community. So, the negative here, as Paul lays it out, he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. The word no in this passage is huge. No, not just a little, not some, not an occasion, but he's very definitive here. Let no corrupting talk. Corrupting talk is talk that in and of itself is corrupt, is rotten, but it also corrupts when it comes out. You see, a number of translations of of the, the English Bible have been made here, and, and sometimes that word corrupting or corrupt is translated as unwholesome or evil or vulgar or harmful or hurtful. Uh, the most telling is simply the word rotten. That's how it's translated in other parts of the scripture when it speaks of fruit coming from bad trees. It's rotten. And we know what rotten fruit is. It smells. And then everything around, it smells as well. And if you eat rotten fruit, you get sick. Right? And so it's, you see the image of this. This is what our words can do. The power, you see, of our, our words. And, and so, so what kind of corrupting talk? Well, I suppose we could begin with this, though. I don't think this is Paul's intention, but I think it fits that we can say that false teaching is corrupting talk. It certainly does corrupt us. I, I don't know that Paul has that on his mind here. I think he has a more uh, uh, personal, relational kinds of uh, language. But, but, but certainly, uh, false teaching corrupts us. It, if we have the wrong view of God, if we have the wrong view of ourselves, if we have the wrong view of life, uh, with the wrong view of eternal life, then, of course, uh, that can corrupt us. We certainly can say that anything that disparages the name of God, the third commandment, don't take the name of the Lord in vain, that is, frivolously. Um, I wonder... How many OMGs are typed every day and sent around? We mustn't frivolously use the name of the Lord. That expression should only be used in worship. Or sometimes even that which is 
trivialized by us, but yet by God is extremely severe, like the word hell. Be careful with the word hell. It's real. Hell is a real place. You see, I shudder even to, to think of it. So we should be careful in how we trivialize the word hell. Certain words that we use to describe that which is sacred. Fascinating to me. That there is a word that describes sexual intimacy in a way that's crude, that seems to be used in every form of speech in our country. And yet God has said sexual intimacy is good and pure between a husband and wife, and yet the word seems to be everywhere. But of course, then there's what we would expect from this. We shouldn't gossip, of course. Uh, our dear friend Jerry Bridges defines gossip like this. He said gossip is spreading the spreading of an unfavorable information about someone, even if it's true. <laughs> the spreading of unfavorable information about people, even if it's true. Uh, we just have to be cautious. Now, sometimes we, we may have to do that in certain contexts and situations, but, but we have to be very careful when we do that. That is not, that is not, we're not gossiping. It's not an ego thing. We're not putting ourselves over above the other person. Somehow it can only be for their good, which again is a, a very dangerous, very dangerous thing. The, the problem, of course, when we live in a community, if we live in a community where there's, where there's gossip, there can be no real unity, right? It's impossible. Because then people can't live out their lives honestly. People can't really live out their lives in such a way that might expose their weakness. Because if their weakness is exposed, then it's exposed to everybody. And they become the talk of the town. Where's that? They may become the talk of the church. And so there's no real way, you see, to live in unity when there's, when there's gossip. I've said this a million times because I believe it's true. That we're not a gossiping church. I trust that's true. But that's my sense of it after almost 30 years of being in your midst. But I think that uh, that's a blessing. If gossip becomes the culture, it destroys the image of God. It destroys our our unity. Slander is another. Again, Jerry um, defines slander like this. He says, making false statements or misrepresentations about another person that defames or damages that person's reputation. So making false statements or misrepresentations about another person that defames or damages the person's uh, reputation. If I could just quote from him a little more elaboration on that, because he says it better than I could. This comes out of his book called Respectable Sins, which is simply a larger version of the conviction that comes from James chapter 3. He isn't saying that there's any sins that are respectable. He's saying these are the ones that we put up with in our own lives. He says, but the Christian slander, his response is this. Yes, we do. We slander. Uh, sorry, I just wanted to see what time it was. We slander when we ascribe wrong motives to people, even though we can't see their hearts or know their particular circumstances. We slander when we say another believer is not committed, when he or she doesn't practice the same spiritual disciplines we do or engage in the same Christian activities we engage in. We slander when we misrepresent another's position on a subject without first determining what that position is. We slander when we blow out of proportion another person's sin 
and make that person appear to be more sinful than he or she really, really is. And then he goes on to say slander really ultimately is is lying. We're saying that which isn't true about, about someone. These rotten, critical, these rotten, uh, unwholesome words could simply be critical speech. That doesn't mean we can't evaluate. That doesn't mean we can't discipline. That means we can't correct. That it doesn't mean we can't go to somebody with difficult words and say, this is sin in your life. doesn't mean that at all. But there can become a culture in a community, in a church, where everything just is criticized and critical speech happens where no one can really feel safe, harsh, harmful words, words that can cut down, name-calling, if you will, uh, words that embarrass others. Uh, how many times have, uh, has a young spouse come into my office in tears saying that her husband makes her the butt of all his jokes and she doesn't know how to tell him how much that really hurts? Or kids talk to us and say, I don't think my parents like me because they always tease me incessantly about this and about this and about this. And, and, and I, I don't feel the freedom to just, to just live. It's, everybody laughs, so I have to laugh with them, but it really, it, really does, it really does hurt. You know that old expression, at least I used when I was a kid, sticks and stones can break your bones, but names can never hurt you? You know that's not biblical at all. Broken bones heal way faster than harsh words. So we must, you see, be careful. There's a danger, of course, to live in a culture where um, there is corrupting speech, where it becomes a way of expression, whether that's in a family, whether that's in a church, whether that's been, whether, whether that's um, true of a, of a nation, when that happens, the dignity of human beings is repressed and disgraced, you see. In fact, I was reading a sermon by uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, a friend of mine. I never met, he's way dead, but anyway, seems like a friend. Um, but uh, he, he, he preached this sermon on this text 60 years ago. Here's what he said. He says, I could very easily digress at this point to call your attention to the obvious increase in this kind of thing that is corrupting speech in the life of our own and other countries. He lived in England, but 60 years ago. People use terms in public that no one would have dreamt of using 40 years ago. Have you not noticed it coming into articles and journals, not only in newspapers? Is it not happening in general? The curious tendency to be daring, indeed it has become so customary that it's no longer daring or shocking. And it is becoming appallingly common. Even in journals of repute, one cannot but notice the curious sad decline that is so evidently taking place. You see, when we live in a culture of corrupting talk, it corrupts. So the positive, the apostle says, okay, no corrupting talk. So here's what you're to do. You're to speak words. Your talk is to be good for for building up 
as it fits the occasion. Uh, now see the transformation. The transformation from it's being corrupting to now it builds up, to now it encourages, now it brings hope. Again, even if we're saying difficult things to people, hard things to people, we do it in such a way that builds them up. And notice, part of the transformation is that we've moved from thinking of ourselves when we speak, speak to be heard, speak because I got something to say, speak because this came into my mind, speak because I want to say this, to now we're actually thinking of the person who hears us. You see the difference? Going from thinking about myself, now I realize I'm actually talking to someone. I'm talking to perhaps one, maybe a group of people, and, and what should be on my mind isn't simply what I want to say, but what is best for them to hear. And so everything changes, you see, from self-centeredness, thinking of my own interests, that now I'm actually thinking of their interests. So much so that Paul says, building up another as fits the occasion, as fits the circumstance, as fits the situation. Now, when he says that, he's not talking about what some of you might think of that there was uh, an idea, still exists though, in certain ways, called situational ethics where the morality of something, the right or wrongness of something depends on the circumstance or the situation. So it changes all the time. There's no absolution. No, Paul isn't saying that at all. He's saying that there is an occasion for you talking. It's right here and now. And so is what you're saying fitting to the occasion? First and foremost, have you taken into account the person you're talking to? Do you know their situation? Do you know their life? Do you know where they are in life? I trust that you spoke differently to your five-year-old about something than you would speak to your 25-year-old about something, right? Because what can they handle at that age? Where are they in that place of life? I trust you say different things to someone who's grieving to someone who isn't. That's why I say there's many things, many hard things we need to take up when life is good. Right? Because we can hear them then. And they prepare us for when life is difficult. Because when life is difficult, that may not be the most opportune time. It may feel like it, but it may not be the best time to speak deeply and directly into that situation. In fact, it may be best in situations like that to say absolutely nothing. Even though there's a ton that could be said. And you may have to hold your tongue for a while. For the right occasion, the right circumstance. Does it fit the occasion in the sense that are you too intense or not intense enough? Are you making too big a deal about this or not a big a deal about this enough? When you get older, young parents come to you all the time and they say, this is going on in the life of my kid. And very often the next sentence, should I be worried about this? And I say, what do you think? Well, I think I should really be worried about this. And sometimes they go, you know what? It's not that big a deal. And other times I say, what do you think? They go, I think, I, I think this isn't a big deal. And I say, trust me, that's a big deal. Right? Does it fit the occasion? Are you rightly applying the intensity? Sometimes we're not intense enough. Sometimes we're too intense. Sometimes we, we think it's too big a deal. Sometimes we think it's not a big deal. We need to be very conscious of these things. We won't get it right all the time. At least that's been my experience. And uh, both coming and going. But, uh, 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 but... He says, this is, this, is the, this is how we're to be, you see. This reflects the new self. How does God deal with you? He 
He builds you up as fits the moment, as fits where you are in life. He's really good at this. Though sometimes we don't think he is. Sometimes we think, God, you're making too big a deal of this. (laughs) And sometimes we don't even notice. And then later we sense his prodding, you see, his correction, his word to us. Because, you see, it's to give us grace. Do, do you hear that? As human beings, made in the image of God, we're able, because of his work in our lives, to give grace through our words. Now, not the same grace that God gives that saves and all of that. But to speak in such a way that really helps someone, speaks in such a way that really benefits someone, speaks in such a way that at the end of the conversation, they can say, maybe not at the moment, but maybe later, at least look back on the conversation and say, that was a great conversation. I'm so glad I had that conversation. I'm so glad you spoke to me in that particular way at that particular time. Uh, And not only that, but through that conversation, there's a sense in which I've come to know God better. That, you see, is ours. To be a person who doesn't speak words that are rotten and corrupt, but rather speak words that build up as we're concerned about the life of the other person, the people to whom we're talking, and to give grace. So the negative is stop corrupting words. The positive is, start using words that build up. And the reason is, so that grace may come and that we not grieve the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit has sealed us for the day of redemption. Sealed us, which means, we learned this from chapter 1, verse 13. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit, meaning that the the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life is God's seal, his stamp, that he says, you're mine. I'm in and with you. That's his stamp, his seal upon us. And you see, when we speak or act in a way that's inconsistent with the presence of the Holy Spirit in us, he is grieved. I suppose the corollary of that is true, that if we speak in such a way, that builds up as fits the moment and gives grace, he is pleased. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me and for us that this expression that we heard earlier in the service, that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. That is our prayer. Our prayer is that we would be like Jesus, of whom it was said that a bruised reed he will not break, and a burning flax he will not snuff out. That our words would work in such a way that where there's bruising, tenderness, that our words would bring healing, that our words would be such as the words of Jesus, that when the light is about to go out, that we can speak in such a way that the light would be inflamed, that it would burst into flame. That's our prayer, God. In Jesus' name, amen.
Please stand for the benediction.